The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Kyle Kazan, who has really done a lot of big things in the space we're going to get into here. But Kyle, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get interested involved in the cannabis space? And tell me about what you're doing with Glasshouse. So thank you, Michael, for having me on today. You are probably the busiest person I know on Twitter spaces, and I really enjoy listening to your shows. So I'm honored to be here. Let's see, my background, so I'm from Southern California, which is California is the home to cannabis. It was not a big deal back in the 80s when I was in high school, and pretty much we were all smoking it, and the cops didn't really bother us. I was an athlete. I then became an inner-city school teacher when my college athlete days ended. You may remember the Rodney King riots. I was working down in, in South Central Los Angeles when that happened. And then I became a police officer after four years of teaching, and I got pretty heavily involved in the war on drugs. Oftentimes, it's a misnomer that I was out arresting cannabis or I was up in the Emerald Triangle. I was a city police officer handling 911 calls and basically dealing with methamphetamine, heroin, and cocaine were, my, were the major drugs that I was dealing with, and also a lot of gang members. And I got a lot of training in this. I also got to see policing and law enforcement up close and personal. And while I think it's a very necessary role in society, there are a lot of things that could be done better and a lot of things that I'm sure would surprise your listeners about what happens in policing and how the budgets work and things like that. So and the war on drugs. And so during the time I was a police officer, I also started, it was the mid-90s, and uh, that was a difficult period for the country. We were in a, we were in a pretty good recession. Uh, we had a savings and loan crisis, and, the saving, and back then the federal government formed the Resolution Trust Company Corporation and started blowing out the bad assets, and I started buying some of the bad assets and took on a business partner who he and I have been now working together since 1996 doing private equity deals. We knock my head. I've yet to lose money in any private equity deal. I've done them all over the United States. I've done them in Europe, done them in Asia, mainly apartments, but also other asset classes, which at the same time I was building that business in a very large property management company. I also was asked what I thought about the war on drugs and I thought it was a war on people. I think it's a mistake. I think any way you measure it, a lot of people here on, that are listening to you today have very good business heads and are investors. And if they looked at the raw data of the war on drugs, they'd say this is a failure. We should get out of it. 
and we should do things much differently. I, I guarantee you when, you when you do that. And so I started speaking out about ending the war on drugs, regulating it all, and, and, then all, and all of a sudden cannabis became a big deal. And when cannabis became a big deal, I was on CNN, I was on Fox, and I was not trying to get into the business, simply just continue doing what I was doing, which was advocating to end, end the nonsense and start legalizing and regulating. But like the people listening here, I am an investor and I also build businesses. And so the opportunity came and in 2016, 2015, 2016, I started investing in the space took on a couple of partner and co-founders, a guy named Graham Farrar, who I think is listening. He's an amazing guy with a big tech background. And my high net worth individuals invested. Over time, we rolled all those private equity funds into one company, which we called Glasshouse Group. And then there was a unicorn facility that I'm sure we'll talk about, which gives us our durable competitive advantage. And the only way we could buy it was going public. And the only way we could buy it was not going public through an IPO. We had to go through a SPAC. And so we barely got out before the SPAC rush ended. And we were able to raise enough money to to buy this greenhouse. We took a little bit of debt to get it going. And the whole goal was to get to free cash flow positive, which is how I run my companies. And yesterday we announced that we did hit free cash flow positive one quarter ahead of when we said we would. So the first quarter of this year, we are a free cash flow positive company in California. Cannabis, that's hard enough. In California, it's like we're a horse with a horn out of our head. So that, that's my long, crazy background. If people are bored to tears, if you Google me there, I think there's a wiki page. I haven't gone out there and looked at it, but there's plenty of information on my my diverse background. So a horse with a horn on its head. So I think a lot of people think that California is the the place to be when it comes to cannabis. But you sent me a note saying that it's actually quite the opposite. There's been a lot of movement out of California. First, lay out just some of the, for those that are not familiar, the history of cannabis in California and how it's rather than evolved, maybe devolved. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. So California, growing cannabis in California and use of cannabis goes back even before the summer of love, which would be 1967 in San Francisco. But there was California always leads the way on a lot of different trends. And cannabis is one of them. And then you had a generation that came back from Korea. They came back from Vietnam, pretty disenchanted. And they just basically moved up to the Emerald Triangle, which is not a great place to grow. That's north of San Francisco and Mendocino, Humboldt. Some of the folks may have heard of it. Also called Murder Mountain if you have Netflix. But what happened was it's a great place to grow and hide. And so you have these amazing small growers that just said, screw you to the federal government and the local government and just went off the grid before going off the grid was a big thing. And it's from up there that a lot of our great strains, these folks did an amazing job. So then in 1996, California was the first to have any kind of legalization when they came out with Proposition 215 that was voted by, it was voted positively by the voters of California. And that was a medicinal marijuana statute rolled out like everything else here in the state, really clunky and badly. Then we had Prop 19 in 2011 is where I really jumped in. We would have been the first recreational state that didn't happen. We It just barely missed. And then the first two recreational states turned on January 1st of 2014, which were Washington and Colorado. And so California stayed medicinal. 
the industry was actually doing probably did better back then than it does now because Prop 64 came in 2016. And when Prop 64, that was the legalization bill for recreation, and it came with it a whole host of taxes, regulations. And the difficulty in California is, one, it's the largest state in the country, so it's the largest cannabis market in the country. And given the fact, Michael, that you had all these amazing small growers, and then you had people like myself and you had other folks that came in and said, hey, let's convert these flower farms that are getting decimated by the competition from Colombia and also tomatoes and bell peppers and cucumbers, which are getting decimated by the competition from Mexico. And let's start repurposing these greenhouses for cannabis. What happened was two, two imbalances happened. One, all of us started making money pretty well until it happens in capitalism. Too many of us came and there was a massive oversupply of cannabis. And what I would liken that to is California is just the right place to grow this plant. And it has that apple in it that people like. It's almost like Cohiba for cigars. It's like Cuba for cigars. And like we grow 95% of the strawberries for the United States in California. The hard part was we're forced to sell all of those strawberries in one state, in the state of California. So you can imagine if we had to do that, what would happen? And then the other part that the imbalance was... Part of Prop 64 was that cities and counties could opt out and not allow shops. And so we have a massive under-representation, probably 65 to 70% of cities and counties are still illegal. So we don't have any stores, which forces people, if they want cannabis, to go to the illicit market. And so the illicit market is probably two-thirds the size of the, the legal market. And that, that's a problem. I didn't realize it was that big. And the competition point sounds like it makes it just challenging to your point. Just this typical what happens with any industry that's growing. A lot of entrants suddenly come in. And unless there's tremendous differentiation around the cannabis, where it's just supply and demand. So how do you, how do you survive the uh, expenses? Congrats on the positive cash flow. But I got to assume for a lot of operators, it's really hard to make a profit. So it is. That's right on point. And California really basically said, let's just build this as entrepreneurial as possible, and then did pretty poorly in actually regulating the market. So to go out there and encourage people to be part of the legal market. But for us, the way we looked at it, oh, by the way, a lot of people that are listening to this may not know, there's a provision in the IRS code and the tax code called 280E. And if you are in the business that is federally illegal, you can't write off most of your expenses. So our tax rate our corporate tax rate is much higher than any other industry because we can't write off most of our expenses. So when we got to free cash flow positive, we're also paying our 280E because some companies decide, screw it, I'm not going to pay it. I'm just going to put it as a liability on the balance sheet. But we just don't think it goes away. So we just said, we're going to go ahead and pay it. But that jacks up our taxes. So again, all these wins that are hitting us, plus we can't just go to most banks very few will actually lend us money. You can't go to the SBA. We couldn't get P money. So all the things, so we pay more taxes and we get less representation than any other industry. Now, me being a realist and knowing how long I'm pretty well politically connected in California, I just know how long things take. And so the reason why we had to get this unicorn facility was that, and this is a great book. If you haven't read it, Michael, it's been a guide to me in this new industry. And that's called Americana, 400 Years of American Capitalism. And it talks about every new industry 
that has come about in the United States, and there are many, but some of the lessons are clear. And one of those, and I, I stay focused on Andrew Carnegie, and I stay focused on Rockefeller, and that is COGS. Pricing is cyclical. COGS can be forever. And so this farm allows us to grow cannabis at a cheaper price and at better quality than anywhere else, I believe, in the country. And you may say, well, how is it? Part of it, part of the reason that this is happening is because it's the second largest greenhouse facility growing anything in the United States. And it comes with a power plant that generates 14 megawatts of clean electricity. It comes with so many advantages, high tech, that allows us to grow it at great scale at prices lower than almost anybody else. And and I'll give you one last point before I, that I want to make. If you look at California and you look at our greenhouse, we're harnessing the sun, which is free. And and we're also harnessing the ocean air that's very nearby. So it keeps it, we can heat and cool our greenhouse very efficiently. And we get the best sun around because it was built by Dutch farmers because of the light. But the thing is, if you look at, say, Massachusetts, which also has a legal market, they grow inside a warehouse. And right now, 10% of Massachusetts state electrical grid is used to grow cannabis inside a warehouse. And I guarantee you that the price it costs them to grow it, we could actually sell, we could grow it and deliver it and sell it at a nice profit and cheaper than they grow it. And they're using coal-fired plants. Even if you're not, you don't subscribe to global warming, it's not that great to use coal-fired plants to grow a plant that you can grow in California, Oregon, and Washington. Yeah, it's an interesting point about how that side of things affects margins dramatically, especially when taxes are so elevated. I, I, th- I feel like we need to talk about safe banking. I see one of the people that attends my spaces often has been hitting on some recent news on the safe banking side. I, myself, candidly have not been tracking too much recently, but... First of all, again, explain for the audience, for those that are not familiar, the importance of safe banking and where are we in resolving some of these issues? Sure, sure. So safe banking is a bill that Congress passed, I don't know, seven, ten times, something like that. And it always kept getting caught up in the Senate with Chuck Schumer. And what the bill does is, remember, we're a federally illegal business. So banks are very concerned about the feds coming in saying, hey, you're assisting people in laundering drug money. And so almost all banks step back and say, this is, we can't touch it. So then you have people out there running businesses that have no access to banking. And so what happens to that one? Criminals know if you're not banking that you're likely to have a lot more cash around. So it makes you a much bigger target. Two, imagine running a business and not being able to easily pay your employees. Paying people in cash, you still Even though you have these problems, the state wants their withholding tax. You still got to pay workers' comp insurance. How do you do that in cash? And so it makes it very difficult. And there's a whole kind of shadow banking that's been happening where banks, it's a cat and mouse game where someone forms an LLC and they get a bank account. The bank finds out. They close your accounts. And we used to do that juggle. And safe banking really and truly to the large companies like mine We already bank with a large regional publicly traded bank, so it's not going to move the needle to me. I look at it as literally people are going to die because they don't have safe banking. There will be murders at stores. Last year, there was one in Los Angeles. There was one in Seattle. There were several. And I strongly believe that if safe banking passes, more banks will bank the industry 
And remember, right now with SVB and First Republic, Signature, regional banks need deposits. And we're talking about many millions of dollars that could get put legally into the banking system if safe banking passes. So I, I don't see a negative for America to have this, but I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I was talking to Republican lawmakers last night and today uh, precisely about safe banking, because right now it's in committee. By, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that point, because that's been just an anecdotal observation for me as a couple of dispensaries by where I am in New York. And I keep seeing like on, on, on ring, right. There's notifications about the robberies that happen because it's all cash. So it's just an easy target for criminals to go after. So I'm with you hundred percent on this, the passive, just if anything, just to make it safer for neighborhoods in general too. crime decreases the value of asset of, of home values, which ultimately impacts state revenue. Also, let's also remember We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. That the people that are being murdered in the stores or are being traumatized by an armed robbery. Those are your kids. Those are college students. These are not evil people. These are just someone that, that chose to work there as opposed to a taco shop or Chipotle or something like that. I mean, I, I have a son who will be 23 this year. It's him. And so it's not only you're right on point about the community, but we're talking about, you know, loss of valuable lives that shouldn't happen. And by the way, one thing that I would tell you that I always want to make sure I, I make a statement about, you know, my company has the largest footprint for cultivation of cannabis, which is not all turned on right now. Still, some is still growing tomatoes and cucumbers, but eventually it will all get turned on. It's the largest footprint in human history, six million square feet. And there's 2,700 people, nonviolent cannabis prisoners serving, many of them quasi-life sentences, for doing far less than I'm doing, including a young man named Jose Valero Jr. Last year, 2022, was sentenced to seven years of hard time for selling less than eight pounds of cannabis in the state of Georgia with no criminal history. I sweep up, my company sweeps up eight pounds in a day, in an hour. We don't think twice about it. So there's more to safe banking as an incremental step that I absolutely am in favor of. But the federal government should stop doing evil. That's the first thing that they need to do, because this is just absolute insanity. Many of those people, and this is one of the things about law enforcement that I didn't understand. I thought when a law changed. So if you're sitting in prison, but you couldn't be sentenced for that law today, that they would just let you out. Doesn't work that way. And so there's many people in here that are watching me do what I do under the same violating the same federal law that wouldn't be sentenced today or couldn't be sentenced today, yet they're still sitting in prison. And I just think that that's a really important point. Even if you don't want marijuana legalized personally, anybody on this that says, ah, I, I'm indifferent, I, I don't want that. It's just not the justice system that we should have here in the United States, because the majority of Americans do want this legalized. And basically it is across the country. And so we just can't have this duality in the law where you guys could buy 
my stock right now on the market and profit from it if we do a good job selling cannabis. Meanwhile, there's people that are serving hard prison sentences right now. You had mentioned to me that you had just been to D.C. or going to D.C. and a couple of pictures, I think one from our mutual friend Todd Harrison took a <laughs> nice shot of you there. Talk about for the audience just how different parties are reacting to the cannabis industry's growth. Everything that you've said to me would suggest that Interestingly enough, Republicans want to hear more from you than Democrats. It's it's a very interesting – for those that have not walked the halls of Congress, I've been lucky enough that I've got to do it a little bit. It's a very interesting experience. And let me give you just a – I'll give you what feels like a non sequitur. There's always things under the surface that that you don't see, and that unless you're in the know – and are dialed in, you just don't see. And, and what I'm going to bring up is our senior senator from California is Dianne Feinstein. You guys might have seen in the news, she is not very capable right now. A lot of people, you know, the word California is that she's pretty debilitated by Alzheimer's. And right now she can't get the votes done to help push President Biden's agenda with his judicial nominees. Just her not being there and the Republicans are not cooperating with. So they need her there. So you say, why am I bringing this up? You see a number of people from California calling for her to resign. Okay, that seems logical. Why would she or why would she not? Most people don't realize that Gavin Newsom, the last time he appointed somebody was when Kamala Harris became vice president. And the Black Caucus in California was very upset that at the thought that he wasn't going to keep that as a seat held by somebody black. He ended up going with Senator Padilla that he owed from Los Angeles, who went against Villaraigosa and went with Newsom during the election. And then he said, OK, he paid that favor back. And again, most people, unless you're just in the know, you didn't know, OK, that's why that's the favor. That's the relationship. And he pissed off the Black Caucus. So he said, if I'm called to appoint somebody else, it'll be a black female. So now you sit here and you go, OK. If she resigns, what happens? You have Barbara Lee, who's running, who has about $10,000 in her account. Then you have Adam Schiff, who has $25 million in his account. The whole thing that's being played on CNN or Fox or whatever else or the New York Times, that's not the real story. The real story is happening in the hallways and behind the scenes where do they want Barbara Lee? Do they want Adam Schiff? So now you come to walk in the halls of Congress here. And we're talking about safe banking. The Democrats... I'm here with Weldon Angelos, who's an amazing person who served 13 years of a 55-year sentence for selling basically three joints. And he has Mission Green, which his whole goal is to get these 2,700 cannabis prisoners out and pardoned. And that's and Todd, our mutual friend Todd Harrison, works closely trying to help Weldon, and I sit on his board. So him being a he was his sentence was commuted by President Obama, and then he was pardoned by President Trump. And Weldon Angelos was able to get Charles Koch and Snoop Dogg on a Zoom or a FaceTime. So he's able to get both sides there, someone very conservative, someone more liberal working together. And so when Weldon said, please come this week because we're going to be meeting with Republicans, when we met with Mike Lee from Utah and Nancy Mace, who I think is the picture that, that you're referencing. And we met with some other other staff and some other people today. And because I'm retired law enforcement, most Republicans really, they will thank me for my service. Most Democrats won't 
Uh, not that they're rude, but they just, that's not their, a lot of times that's not their bent, but they'll apologize to Weldon for all that he went through. And so he said, Kyle, I would really appreciate your voice in the room with these folks because I think that you'll resonate very strongly with them. And so that's why I took the red eye out on Mother's Day to be here in D.C. so that I could. And it's, by the way, it's police week here. That's the reason. I will say this. The Republicans that we've met have also apologized to Weldon, too, because what happened to him was so cruel, so unusual and so ridiculous that when you hear the story from him, as poignant as he tells it, you can't help but be embarrassed as an American that our fellow countrymen went through this. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes or so, everyone, please make sure you follow Kyle Kazan here on Twitter. And if you find that you want to get involved and engage with some of the advocacy that he and Weldon Angelus do, Mission Green is the thing to Google. I had Weldon on I want to say, what, three months ago, Kyle, with you on? And it was really an incredible story. Uh, you did a brilliant job. You got that story out there so nicely, Michael. And thank you for doing that. But yes, Mission Green is part of the Weldon Project. You can Google it. And any support that someone could give would be much appreciated. By the way, on a side note, it shows you just how so many different parts of, of industry are impacted by these different regulatory mismatches. So usually when I release a YouTube video, I'll also promote it, right? I'll spend some ad dollars on it to get some added viewers, not just rely on the YouTube algorithm. That video is one of the videos I actually can't promote because YouTube comes back and says, or Google comes back and says, we can't promote videos that talk about cannabis, which is just maddening because here's a story which is powerful, which everybody needs to hear. And I can't even spend ad dollars to get people to hear it. That's news to me. But as you can imagine, from being the chairman CEO of a cannabis company with my hands tied in so many ways, it doesn't surprise me, but gives me something else to shake my head about. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. I, I want to shift gears just a tiny bit, just given your years of experience on the private equity side. You mentioned apartments, this regional bank crisis. Everyone seems to be concerned that this is the, uh, the first domino to fall. There's going to be all kinds of nasty ramifications when it comes to VC, to private equity, commercial real estate. I'm just curious, just from your vantage point, if what's happening with the regional banks is, are you seeing some of the effects that people are arguing are going to be coming to the private equity space? Oh, boy. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. If you don't mind me quoting one of my favorite people, few understand this. This is a bigger problem than people think. For instance, we're looking to refinance an office property. It's 38,000 square feet in a city called Palos Verdes, California. It's very near where I live. It's an A market, and it's a very small submarket. And our property is running well above 90% occupied. We've had no issues. Even during COVID, it wasn't that bad. But because of the banking crisis and because of where things are heading, trying to find a non-recourse loan that were plentiful out there before is almost impossible because, number one, it's an office property. So they just broad brush shut that. So when I'm watching this, I would have gone to a regional bank for sure and would have been able to get, even at a lower LTV, loan to value, a non-recourse loan. 
And that's literally not on the table right now. And we've owned that property basically since 06 and had no trouble even during the financial crisis. I think if someone has to mark to market their real estate loan holdings, if you if you did it as a sector, I would tell you that the entire banking system in the United States is underwater right now by a decent amount. So if there was a run on capital and people decided to go to the go to treasuries instead, without the treasury stepping in, and I don't I mean our system would collapse. That's causing a whole lot of problems and as Jerome Powell keeps moving the interest rates up. And quite frankly, I don't know what else he can do. He's had to be aggressive here because he waited so long, in my opinion. You're going to have, in the next two, three years, you're going to have a ton. And I don't have the number, but if it's not a trillion, it's hundreds of billions of dollars of properties that are going to have bullets. Their loans are due and payable. Most people probably don't know that five units on up, office buildings, commercial properties, you don't get a 30-year fixed rate loan like you do for a house. You get loans that are three, five, seven, or 10 years typically, and they must be paid off. And the problem is we had low interest rates for so long. A lot of people bought in the last few years at very low cap rates because the interest rates were very low. So they were able to get positive leverage. Now that's flipped on its head by 300 basis points, 400 basis points you're going to have properties that are just worth less. And so it'll be interesting to see what the banks do if they try and let them zombie along like they did in the last recession, or they do what they did with the Resolution Trust Company and they just put the banks out of business. But yeah, this problem is we're still early days in it. And we've only seen three banks collapse. There's going to be many more. So thank you for the question. Let me unpack that a little bit. When you say the embraced, so California named cannabis an essential business during COVID. And they wanted to close down most businesses. And they realized if they closed down the cannabis, the legal cannabis industry, people would just to keep buying cannabis only, it would just build up the illegal. So we were embraced in our state, we're embraced that way. And then I would tell you, I mentioned Washington and Colorado were the first public employee unions and city budgets now count on cannabis and taxes from cannabis. California gets, I think, like a billion dollars or some very big number. So in some ways, yes, we've been embraced mainly by the states and also by some of the cities and things like that. When it comes down to investment grade, it's very difficult for people to custody cannabis. If you decide, hey, I have a Morgan Stanley account or I have this retirement account, I want to go ahead and hold some cannabis stocks. It's very difficult. Like people ask me all the time, how can I buy your stock? And I'd say, you have to go get a Schwab account and try and go do it. And it's not going to be easy. I'm just warning you now. It's not going to be simple. And then you say, when my friends say, Kyle, what do you think? Should we invest in cannabis, either your company or another company? I have to be very careful since you know we're a publicly traded company, given advice on my company. But I would say, look, I do think there are some good values out there, but they're all we're all thinly traded because all of the cannabis companies that are based in the United States are still forced to trade in Canada. And then down here, we typically trade on the OTC. So the volume is very low. So while I think the Ben Graham model of investing, I really like my investments. I've not sold a dime of Glasshouse. I've maintained my shares and continue to add. But there's a time value of money. And if the federal government, and I'll answer the last part, which was innings, until the federal government starts letting some incremental things happen where we can actually uplist to NASDAQ and NYSE and we, and custody becomes less of an issue or no issue, 
so that we could be treated like a casino or alcohol or some of the or waste management, some of the other highly regulated industries. It's hard for me to make an argument that you should put your money to work here because you're not going to do well, in my opinion, unless we get some of that incremental change and it's yet to happen. So safe banking is what a lot of us are hoping is the first step, actually. In regards to innings, God, it's it's amazing where I've been able to call recessions in the past. And sometimes I can call like where I think an upswing happens. The timing is just the timing is always the difficulty because so many factors can change. I hope we're within two to three years of a full legalization. And when I say three, that may be a, another administration. But then you say, who's the next president? I don't know. That may be worse, better. Mr. Biden has yet to be a friend of the industry. So, But I think at some point, the tipping point happens. And I say that just because it's becoming more and more entrenched in our society, and it's becoming more and more ridiculous that our elected leaders are not listening to the the majority of Americans in this democracy. I feel like that's a constant no matter what, though. <laughs> that's beyond... No, and there's a degree of just inertia in what we have two weeks until the debt ceiling. And I don't know, it's, I have very little hope that there's any kind of effectiveness that can come from the federal side, at least on a short term basis. Yeah, I can't argue with you. It's very frustrating. A lot of investors have been with us all the way back to 2016, 2017. A lot of these have, you know, invested with me for years and years. And they'll ask me all the time, only perhaps more selfishly because they're just sitting on the, on a stock that I think was moving nicely today and it's moved up a little bit since we've, we're cash flow positive. But I, it's, when I look at the assets we have, I look at the cash we have and I look at what our, we're trading, I scratch my head and go in almost any industry, we're trading at a ridiculously low level. And by the way, it's not just Glasshouse, there's some other companies I can make the same argument for. Very few would I tell you, do I think they're overpriced? I wonder if just as higher rates continue to stay higher for longer, what's the likelihood of either consolidation in the space or just in general taking out competition? Just You've got to be a very strong operator to survive all the intricacies, but now you've got higher rates. I get it, it's cash, but still, presumably there's going to be some you know, bankruptcies that happen, not just in cannabis, but everywhere as debt gets rolled over across the board. So for cannabis, we live in a bizarre world of, you know, when debt was low, we were trading high and actually we just trade much higher than anything else because it's a federally illegal business. And also most banks are not playing. So we are getting the private equity you mentioned are the ones that actually that, that's who our senior secured lender is a private equity shop. I do think across across the board, we're going to see really tough times ahead in, in terms of the economy. When it comes down to cannabis companies, I think you're going to see a lot of companies go away in the next year and a half. If we don't get some incremental like 280E going away, things like that. So you're going to see you know, actual mom and pop businesses and some very large companies go away. And we're seeing that in California. There's other publicly traded companies there that are just, when you look at their balance sheets and you look at... Their earnings and things like that, they're upside down. And it's a real tragic shame because if they would just let business happen in this country, let the states handle it, I think you'd see a lot more businesses flourish. It's really a shame. But presumably, I mean, I'm going to assume it's every other industry, right? There's going to be opportunities for companies like yours to scoop up, you know, distressed operators. Yes, no doubt. We were certainly looking at that and we did, we bought a, we bought another publicly traded company last year that makes gummies and edibles company, and they were bankrupt. And so we were able to get a what I thought was like 
one-tenth of what I saw of a Canadian company paid for a gummy company just based on the fact that they were totally distressed. And then we also bought four retail shops owned by a guy who had a major tax problem, which included a prison term. So there's plenty of blood in the streets when it comes down to opportunities that way. But it's as, as much as I've been called a, a vulture investor, which they did that back in 08, Bloomberg called me that. This one is just so tragic because some of the, fo- the folks, they didn't overlever themselves. They didn't do this. They didn't do all the, the things where you, they just are trying to battle in a business that the government won't get out of the way. And it's when I see that happen, I just feel terrible that regulation is and the government is the reason for it, as opposed to, hey, some investors decided to buy, you know, in 2020 or 2019, they decided to buy something at a three cap rate, borrow at two and a half. And now the rate's five or six, and they just, they're upside down. It's like, well, that's an investor decision, and it falls completely on them. I don't really, it's a different situation, I guess. But in regards to us, as we continue to build our balance sheet, yes, we will be able to help consolidate the business for sure. What I appreciate about you, Kyle, is that you're like a man on a mission. It's more than just profit. It's cliche to say, but it's profit with purpose in being an advocate for those in the Twitter space, those that are listening to this as a podcast, who those that want to get involved and that are passionate like you, what can people do? You're in a position of power and influence. A lot of people want to get involved, but they don't feel maybe that their voices are going to be heard. Wow, great question. On the business side, I would say whenever you have these irregular markets, even if they're caused by regulation, there's always opportunities if you look d- deep enough. And on the on the side of just for me... It's a moral imperative since I run a large cannabis company to not turn my back on the folks that are in prison. So to the extent that someone could call their senators and their congressperson and just express they do, you know, when they when you call, they actually write down your position. They take like little straw polls. If enough people called their local senators and their representatives and just express that you want nonviolent cannabis prisoners out of prison, that would help. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, but if enough people do it, it actually moves the needle. Is there like a centralized place that people can, aside from Mission Green, which you know I want you to talk about also briefly, but a place that people can track some of your conversations, your thoughts, aside from Twitter, is there some place that people can turn to? Oh, God, my wife would probably t- tell you that she would like to turn away from anything because she hears way too much of me. But I would say the best place really is is Twitter because when I'm on Instagram, it's just photos. LinkedIn is, I I think I'm more the place that I go to, to share my thoughts. And also typically I go on podcasts that I announce on Twitter, or if I'm going to go on a Twitter spaces like this, Michael. So I, I would say the best place, if you just want some updates and what I'm thinking about politics and that is Twitter. And I have a much smaller following than you do, but it's, it's slowly growing. And I liken this space right now to where tech was during the dot bomb. And I think you're going to find that some of these little companies, if you just start paying attention, maybe don't even invest in them, there will be some Amazon.coms, there will be some Pets.coms. And if you're watching the legislation and you're watching not just me, but you and Todd Harris and some other folks, you might be there when all of a sudden some of that incremental legislation happens. And if if you're tracking a company that you think is worthwhile or some companies – you might be able to make a good timely bet on on those companies. But yeah, for the answer to your question, I would say 
my Twitter is probably the best. I think that's a uh, good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Kyle, nice to hear your voice again. I'm glad and congrats that you're doing well on the cash flow side. And hopefully I'll see everybody very soon. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.